there were obvious flaws in their data, right? And the most obvious one was that we discovered that you had this with these these weird peaks of of, of non COVID mortality apparently occurring in the unvaccinated in each age group, just at the time when the vaccine rollout peaked for that age group. And you think, well, hang on a sec, this can't be right. Why would people not taking the vaccine cause them to suddenly die in increased numbers from non-COVID illness? And especially it was, and it was happening you know, as I say, just after the, the vaccine rollout peaked. And it was, they were different, different age groups had these different peaks because they were different rollout times, okay? So you could see this. And of course, we realized straight away that this was due to, this was a misclassification problem. This was that people who were dying very shortly after vaccination were being classified as unvaccinated. And of course, for all the efficacy, they were saying, oh, no, they didn't. They weren't doing that for deaths. Yes, they do it for when they consider efficacy, because, you know, that if if you're trying to work out the efficacy of the vaccine, if you get if you get COVID, if you get a, a positive test within 14 days of the first dose, you're, you're, you're classified as unvaccinated, which was the, the classic way to massively boost, artificially boost the efficacy numbers for, for vaccines. But this was happening with mortality. Welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, a podcast where we mostly talk about the environment and our health and how they interact with each other, but also some things that you won't hear in the mainstream media. So let's investigate what else is happening, let's hear some alternate views, and let's make up our own minds. Fair Food Forager. (laughs) Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. (laughs) That sounds like a very good idea. (laughs) Fair Food Forager. another episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, the podcast brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app, the world's only ethical social media and sustainable food directory. So you can use this food directory when you're on the road to find ethical and sustainable food. Cafes, restaurants, farmers, markets, bulk food stores who are reducing the impact on the planet by reducing waste, food waste, plastic waste, sourcing locally, finding organics, anything like that. And you can also share posts, recipes, food that you're growing, your appreciation of nature, your bushwalk, your beach cleanup, anything that helps each other and the planet. In today's podcast, I'll be speaking to Professor Emeritus of Risk at Queen Mary University of London, now retired, and Norman Professor Norman Fenton, He is an expert in Bayesian probabilistic reasoning and most of this podcast will be talking about COVID and how they twisted statistics, numbers and a little bit of language to justify lockdowns and vaccine mandates and basically keep fear going by making people afraid 
by just these little slight twists and you'll see how it was used all over the place. You may have suspected it yourself, but here is Professor Norman Fenton to explain a little deeper on how it all came about. Norman Fenton, welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show. We've found the time to have a chat on opposite sides of the world. Norman, you are a professor of probability and mathematics. Is that correct? There's a lot more to say. So let's, I guess we'll hear it from you. Yeah, actually, I'm a mathematician by training. And uh, until I retired last month, I was officially a professor of risk in the School of Electronic Engineering and Computer Science at Queen Mary University of London. Um, I've published uh, six books and over 300 peer reviewed papers. And I kind of like to think I was quite highly respected in my field, which is now really concerned with quantifying uncertainty using a thing called Bayesian probability. So it's kind of like a um a particular type of statistics so that was the case until i started to show in uh 2020 that the entire covid narrative was being driven by flawed and easily manipulated statistics and that was when i was uh suddenly called a conspiracy theorist and spread of misinformation and from that point on i guess uh, all of my research papers on the subjects were essentially centered censored and i was kind of treated like an academic pariah I first heard you on Brett Weinstein's podcast, the Dark Horse podcast, and I was following you on on Twitter uh, prior to that. I was a little bit shocked that you said that your students, who you'd had no problem with in all your years of as of teaching, all of a sudden had a problem with you, and it was because of this whole the story around COVID. And I guess a lot of us have experienced the same thing. Yeah, that was a that was a very unfortunate instance. So that's actually. It happened just just as I was starting my master's module. I teach. I used to teach when I was at Queen Mary because I said I've retired now. I was teaching this master's module on risk and decision making for computer science and AI. And even before I, I think it was yeah, I, I hadn't even really started the, the module. I think I'd done an introductory lecture. I hadn't said anything. Didn't really touch any, on anything to do with this stuff. Um, but I. I heard that, yeah, a delegation of students. I mean, it was, I think it was maybe like something like 10, whereas it's a very large class of something like 280 students in on the class, but about 10, a delegation of them went, you know, went to the, the, the head of school and said they didn't want to be taught by me because I was a, you know, sort of a, a COVID denier, you know, cons- conspiracy theorist or, or whatever. And, um, demanded to be switched to a different module, even though it was actually a compulsory module for that master's program. So, yeah that's that's i've never never experienced anything like that before but then again there are so many things in the last three years since i've been speaking out about this that i've never experienced before i mean never never you know would i believe that i'd be sort of had my i'd be cancelled at the last minute from giving presentations to to colleagues i'd never imagined that i didn't wasn't really aware i'd I'd completely forgotten that there was even a wikipedia entry for me but you know to, to again as a discussed in the Brent Weinstein show to have that kind of um edited with just a pack of liars you know with this you know these same ridiculous claims about being an anti-vaxxer or conspiracy theorist yeah it's quite it's all a bit bit bewildering and, so, and somewhat shocking 
they know that Wikipedia, you know, you take some of it with a with a grain of salt, but that story you tell of, I think it was Alex Brown, who was a, a retired computer programmer, was the person yeah, who was yeah. changing your entries. Yeah, and any time anybody tried to fix it, he would just uh, overrule them, yeah. I mean, the, the only good thing about that, I mean, I haven't, I mean, I haven't looked, I've got no idea what my entry says now, because I don't think I've looked at it for the last, I don't think I've looked at it probably since that, since it eventually got edited back, because unbelievably, unlike Brett Weinstein himself, and unlike people like much, much more prominent people like Robert Malone and Peter McCullough and any number of who still got, you know, prominently at the top of their Wikipedia entry, this, this uh, statement that this is, these are conspiracy theories, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I, I had a, a bit of a victory because in the end, they, they were, they, I say they, I don't know that they, they, they relented and took out and took away the lies. And so it doesn't, as far as I know, it doesn't say it anymore. Oh, that's fantastic because it's yeah. something whenever I get a guest, when I first start looking at the person that I, I want to contact to have on the show, it's interesting that prior to COVID, if I read that someone in some sort of bad juju on their on their Wikipedia page, yeah. I'd, I'd think to myself, hmm, you know, it's just automatic. But now since COVID, I realise that it's very easy to paint someone in a bad light and and yeah. how much of an impact that has on a person's career or, you know, if I was Joe Rogan, for example, and he was thinking like that and then you don't go on the show because someone has has painted you in that way. I'm not saying that that's what he would do, but, you know, it's, it can really impact someone's life and it's just because they're trying to dictate the narrative all the way along. Yeah, I mean, they, they have... So it's control, you know, so it's control over. It's not because it's not just uh, uh, Wikipedia. I mean, it's it's you know the entire mainstream media, and it's the entire you know all of the main social media platforms as well. I mean, I've been uh, viciously attacked by the so-called Seventy Seventh Brigade. I don't know if you know about those in in the UK. I mean, no, tell us about them. Oh, the Seventy Seventh Brigade. So this was an organisation. This is part of the uh, the the UK Ministry of Defence. It's actually a brigade. It's actually so a so-called intelligence brigade, which is part of the British Army, right? It was set up in um, I don't know, probably nearly ten years ago. I think it was supposed to sort of collect sort of information online about sort of threats, external threats to the UK through the internet. You know, so. Um, I guess originally it was, you know, presumably it was sort of picking up in uh, online intelligence about potential terrorist attacks or that kind of thing. So presumably the the, the original intentions were good, but um, they recruited uh, and they recruit effectively, I don't know, armchair computer sort of users, people who sort of uh, like to sort of uh, go on sort of Twitter and Facebook or whatever. And, and the idea was that they would look for, you know, any signs of, of, of kind of like, it was originally any any signs of threats to the, you know, external threats to the UK government. But since the, um, you know, the whole COVID thing, they were put to use to basically um, clamp down on any so-called, you know, misinformation about, about COVID. And these people who have you know no military experience whatsoever, as I understand, they're paid about twenty five thousand pounds a year 
they're just sitting in their bedrooms, you know, or their you know the, their garages, basically following accounts of I guess people like me and anybody who was voicing any concerns, and then they basically their tactic is to first of all um, get as many people, not necessarily within their brigade, but but outside you know within their biggest large circle of friends to attack to attack the dissenters directly, for example, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, but also to look for any kind of like posts or any indications, yeah, any sort of specific post where they can actually report you and get you removed from Twitter. So they, they, these were the people who were getting, you know, all of the sort of the, the dissent, all of the either academic or other, uh, you know, dissenters, people who were, you know, sort of presenting the counter narrative, getting them, getting them suspended from Twitter. This is what they were doing. And it's come out open. And people originally, when we raised this, because it's you can go onto the website at the British Army and you can look at the 77th Brigade. And it's completely out in the open now. And it and they're completely out in the open about the fact that they, you know, they are monitoring misinformation. You know, why that should and why they should be doing that against you UK citizens and other things. It wasn't supposed to be there originally. We've known about this for yeah, for nearly yeah, for two and a half years now. We've known about this, that they were doing this to us. And yet, for some reason, it only became, and you could see, go on to the, uh, let's say, the, the, the MOD, the Ministry of Defence uh, website and see this. Yet, it was only very recently that it became a, it, out into the mainstream media because I think it was someone, you know, someone like, I don't know, I think the Daily Mail or one of the um, mainstream media papers actually published an article saying that, um, you know, a number of sort of quite prominent and not particularly controversial UK media personalities had been being monitored by the 77th Brigade. I mean, it was someone like Julia Hartley Brewer, who was, you know, not at all, you know, not particularly controversial. She was a big promoter, although she didn't, she she was vocal against lockdowns on her radio show. She has quite a big following. She completely was supportive of the the vaccines you know she 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 was vaccinated herself she kept pushing the vaccines you know, save lives that that kind of message and yet she was one of these people who was uh who, who turned turned out that, that they've been targeted and she was you know very angry about it and it became much more of a story when people like that realized that you know they were being targeted in this in this way i mean it's a it's a total scandal because it was you know to be yeah, for the british army to be monitoring uk citizens simply because they are let's say challenging a particular government you know farmer funded narrative is it's completely outrageous it's crazy that we have governments and even facebook they one of the the people that were checking for misinformation is an ex-analyst from the cia we know all this stuff with twitter and the and the fbi working at Twitter and that Facebook yeah. were contacted by the FBI to hide things with the the Hunter Biden laptop. It's funny that we're just we seem okay with this. And I think anyone who was any of people like us who were questioning the COVID narrative, we knew that the fact checkers that were on social media, which I guess is similar to what you just explained, they weren't doctors or it wasn't it mm. wasn't like a competition of skills and knowledge it was just that they had the buttons that could could put the little sticker over 
parsley false information or fact checkers say this is incorrect. Nine times out of 10, when I looked into some of those fact check bits of information, they were they were had the sticker there, but they were fact checking something that was quite irrelevant from what the post was about anyway. Yeah. Exactly. That's the way they do it. It's, it's just incredible. As you say, these people totally unqualified, totally unqualified and and supposedly fact-checking people who have, you know, are highly credentialed in many cases. Unbelievable. Very strange times. And I guess we should start talking about uh, COVID because I am not a statistician. I don't study probability, but I, I did mm. s- statistics at university and to be honest, sometimes was uh, struggling to stay awake. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm definitely not as skilled as you. But during the pandemic and very early on, myself and and some of my friends who I talked to on a daily basis during it started asking each other the same questions. Like it seems like they're taking a bit from both ends with this thing to boost numbers, and yeah. even. Taking a broader look back in hindsight, I can see how when they were really starting to push that we were going to have a vaccine here in Australia, they were testing everyone. They were telling everyone to get tested. We would have, I I remember here, because I live about an hour from Sydney, and there was a bit of an outbreak in, in a part of Sydney. And one of those people came to the shops the shopping centre down here near where I am, they tested 30,000 people from that. And I I don't think they actually got a single positive case out of that. But it seemed like there was a massive drive to test. And then once they got their, their, their amount of vaccinated people, then they stopped the testing. And actually now they're still, they're still testing, but they're testing also for, uh, different flus and RSV as well. Right. And that's also interesting because where were those tests two years ago? Because the flu went away. Yeah, exactly. Apparently. <laughs> Look, the piece, the whole PCR testing thing was what essentially drove the entire narrative and it was what enabled effectively most of the sort of Western governments, as, as far as I can tell, to implement their policies so for example the the second i mean the first lockdown in the uk which happened in march 2020 that hadn't been driven by over testing that was just you know there are lots of reasons why that happened and they they put out this myth that it was just going to be two or three weeks to sort of flatten the curve to ensure that the nhs wasn't overrun it was based on of course flawed ridiculous you know mathematical models right but that wasn't that itself wasn't driven by exaggerated case numbers from 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 testing right but and in fact at that point we were actually one of the first research groups to to highlight the fact that the infection fatality rate which was the scary thing you know if you got it you're they were saying you're very likely to die right but of course that had been massively inflated by the fact that the only people who they were were actually testing were people who were already hospitalized and very ill with symptoms so obviously a much you know if you think those are the only people who've got covid right um then obviously there's going to be a higher relatively high proportion of those who will die so this but that created the impression that the covid was such an incredibly deadly 
disease when it really wasn't, right? Because there are so many people who, of course, had very mild symptoms, weren't being tested, and therefore weren't being at that time classified as cases, right? So interesting enough, it was the lack of, it was almost the sort of the lack of testing which drove the first lockdown, right? But from then on, it was all about the PCR test driving all the narratives. So and ironically, incidentally, we, we actually, because we didn't know how inaccurate the PCR test, how flawed and easily manipulated the PCR test was, we actually, um, you know, we were actually calling in those research papers where we were talking about the inflated fatality rate and the underestimated infection rates. We were calling for more sort of random testing to sort of find out how widespread the the virus was in the general population, right? But I so say we didn't know about how bad the uh, tests were. So what happened was that late summer, actually, the cases went right down, right? Of course, in that summer, people saying, ah, oh, it's a success, the lockdown's been a success, blah, blah, blah. Come the late summer, early autumn, they started to do this mass test PCR testing program in the UK. For no, you know, there wasn't any justification for it whatsoever, right? And what you were seeing was that, of course, this exponential growth in the number of test testing they've done because a lot of asymptomatic people because they're saying, well, look, we need to test everyone because to go back, we're opening up now. And therefore, we, if you want to go back to work, you've got to be tested and all that sort of stuff. Test, you've got to show that you've got a negative test. And so suddenly the case numbers are going right up. Well, of course, it turns out, as we know, because of the, you know, the very higher proportion of asymptomatics who are testing positive with a PCR test that don't actually have the virus at all right you're going to get as you ramp up those testing numbers you're going to ramp up the number of cases right and yet the government dashboard was only publishing this massively increasing case rate cases being a pcr positive test right and i was at that point we were simply pointing out actually if you just divide the number of positive cases by the number of tests you're doing there isn't there isn't much of an increase going on. You're just, you know, you're getting this increase because you're increasing the testing, right? And that that radical act, this is what I mean, you don't need to be particularly good at statistics or maths. All it was doing, all it was doing was sort of dividing two numbers, right? But apparently that was a radical, that was where I was first targeted as a spreader of misinformation, simply because I, simply because I raised, you know, I was radical enough to, 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 to look at a simple division, right? And I was sort of publishing, you know, what the actual... Uh, case rate was, you know, div, you know, by the number of people, you know, factoring factor in the number of people who have been tested. And, but what happened was that that massively, because they were only looking at the cases going up, that's what led to the, the second lockdown. And all other, if you look at other data, and of course, if you look at the, the PCR tests being classified, a positive PCR test being classified as a case, of course, also drove the hospitalization and death numbers, right? Because anybody who had a PCR positive within 14 days of a hospital admission or any time after, right, was classified as a COVID hospital admission. Whereas, of course, in most cases, they were being hospitalized with something completely different. And then you've got the death, you know, the death definitions. Um, in the UK, anybody who had a PCR positive, who died within 28 days of a PCR positive test for whatever reason, right, irrespective of what the cause of death were, that was classified as a COVID death, as you know, as well. So increasing the testing increases the cases, 
increases the hospitalizations, increases the deaths, all the COVID classified hospitalizations and deaths, right? So everything's looking bad. So you go into the second, we went into the second lockdown. And thereafter, everything, everything seemed to be all um, moving towards the, the notion that at that point, well, we can only get out of this. We've got to wait now for the vaccination program. The vaccination program is the only thing that's going to get us out of this in 2021. Yeah, it happened almost exactly the same here, I would say. I remember all the uh, the fear on, and we had daily news conferences with politicians and they were it was just cases and they would have they were discussing whether to lock down suburbs of cities or or suburbs of country towns based on these positive tests but it wasn't necessarily there was nobody in hospital i remember and as you said it for here it was to protect our hospitals as well just as as you said the nhs but I have some friends who are nurses and they weren't doing anything during that time because they weren't, there was nothing else happening in hospitals. It was all to prepare for COVID. Ironically, they still haven't done anything to improve the standards of the hospitals or staffing since, you know, they've had three years to do that if it was going to be such a big issue. But it was all based on numbers and they did lock down whole suburbs and towns i think they actually locked down south australia for two cases at one stage yeah and and so are are you saying that more than because you you always hear about the uh the false positives is it more the uh that people are asymptomatic which i thought was already a a bit of a a misnomer from the beginning because I understand someone who is potentially carrying something, but they're not they're not showing symptoms as well that's pre that's pre-symptomatic, yeah. Which which you know yeah. They they're carrying something, but they've dealt with it, their body's dealt with it, or they're not showing symptoms because their body can deal with it. Or it could just be a dead nucleotide that lots of reasons. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, that this whole idea about asymptomatic, you know, what is asymptomatic, what does asymptomatic mean and what is asymptomatic, is there asymptomatic transmi- transmission, etc. That was all, of course, you know, I mean, most of that, the idea about asymptomatic transmission was was, was effectively debunked. But yeah, there is a there is a distinction between, as I say, between someone who's pre-symptomatic, you know, which you can be sort of for a, a few days before you sort of get the virus. But even then, when you haven't got symptoms, even if you're pre-symptomatic, you know what's the how likely it is that you could um, uh, actually transmit that you know the, the virus to somebody else. That's that's of course you know not very it's not very clear what the uh, the situation is with that. But the point is, in most cases, the asymptomatics were generally asymptomatic. I essentially there was nothing wrong with them, or it was, it was, you know, you're picking up this sort of dead virus, whatever. And the point is, the key point is those people were not a threat to the health of others. That's the key thing. Whereas they were treated, these people are treated as a threat to others. But again, these are, these are people who didn't have any symptoms and were simply for, um, because of the inadequacies and flaws of the testing, they, they tested positive. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this whole idea about false positive rate which is actually where the, the sort of the bayesian stuff kind of like explains this so I'm, I'm happy to just give you sort of a brief sort of 
walk through that because so so few people understand you know misunderstand this because the key thing about uh bayes probability is it's it, it tells us how do we revise the prob our belief in the probability of something the way that's uncertain once we see evidence about it so if you're if you're asymptomatic whether you're asymptomatic or not whatever if, if you let, let's suppose that you're asymptomatic right then you think there's there's a low chance you've got any virus right so there's a lot you're starting from a sort of a fairly low probability right if you test positive if you then go for a pcr test because you've got to do it for work or whatever and you test positive what's the probability now that you really do have the virus because there's no gold standard test for it you're just using information about how you've got to use information about how accurate the test is in order to determine your the probability that you really have the disease right hmm. well this is where the confusion comes in because actually the the probability that you wrongly test positive if you don't have the disease is actually very low right let's just for example let's suppose it's just one percent in fact it might even be a bit lower than that in practice so only one percent of people who don't have the disease will wrong will don't have the virus will wrongly test positive so if you now find out and let's suppose that if you've got the disease the test is always it will always correctly give you a positive then people think because of those that seems like a very accurate test people think well hang on a sec if i test positive i, don't, I must have there must be they'll think i've got a 99 chance of having the virus because that that's what people think of because there's only one percent chance of having it of getting the positive if you haven't got the disease so there must be a 99 chance that i've got it if i test positive no no and i can give you a very i'll give you the informal bayesian explanation of why that's not the case so here we go let's suppose that the true rate out there, the true probability that an asymptomatic person at any one time has got the virus is one in a thousand, right? Which is about, actually, you know, seems reasonable, right? Imagine testing 10,000 people, 10,000 asymptomatics. Then because we know about one in a thousand have the virus, you will find 10 genuinely, genuine uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find 10 people genuinely have the virus out of those 10,000, yeah? Yep. So we've got 10 people out of 10,000 have the virus. But that means that just under 10,000, 9,990 or whatever, don't have the virus. So just under 10,000 of those people don't have the virus. But with a 1% false positive rate, you're going to get 100 people, about 100 people, who don't have the virus, who test positive. So we've now got 10,000 people and of whom 110 are testing positive, but only 10 have the virus, <laughs> 100 don't. So what you've got is 10 out of 110 who test positive have the virus. Well, that's less than 10%. That means over 90% of the people who test positive don't have the virus. So it's very unlikely, it's actually, it's actually very unlikely that you do have the virus if you test positive even though there's only a one percent false positive rate now now it's i mean i there's you know i always prefer to do this with sort of simple sort of simple animations with sort of populations and 
people can see it once they do that. But it's very hard for people to get their, their hands, their heads around this. And believe me, politicians and even actually quite a lot of static, classical statisticians don't exactly get this stuff. But it's why this is this is it's it's incredible that people you know don't realize the extent to which that you know that that PCR testing was driving up these numbers simply on the basis of a misunderstanding of of of, of, of Bayesian statistics. It seems highly unlikely that all the countries that did it exactly the same. And I can think of, uh, you know, Australia, the UK, the US, New Zealand, Canada, at least, probably the European Union, did the same type of, of testing. Could they have all got it wrong or had a misunderstanding of Bayesian probability by mistake all at the same time? <laughs> it seems unlikely. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't know. I think that... Well, is is it just, is it uh, is it you know cock up or is it conspiracy? I mean, I'm I'm I think that this was I think it was well known to the governments that the PCR test was going to you know massively exaggerate case numbers, and I think it and but I think it was a very very convenient test for them because it's so easily manipulated to fit the narrative. So, for example. We know at different times they were reducing or increasing the cycle threshold for the test, right? Which of course changes the you know pushes up pushes down the false positive rate, right? If you if you set it if you set the cycle threshold threshold low enough, you won't get you won't get you know false positives, right? So um, you know, and they they'll say, well, you can't do that because then you're going to miss some true then you're going to miss some true positives, okay? So. Um, and so we are on the safety by pushing up cycle threshold to make sure that we do catch all those who genuinely have it. So I think they 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 knew about this, but because it's so easily manipulated, you can you can change narratives. So you can push up the numbers if you want to make sure that you you know get people in the mindset to get vaccinated, right? And of course you can reduce the cycle threshold, reduce the amount of testing you do when you want to show that ah the lockdowns were successful. Or the vaccine program has been successful, so they could do that. The problem with the uh, it, that might have worked to a certain extent with the lockdowns, but of course they can't. It's not so easy for them to pull that trick with the uh, with the vaccines uh, with the vaccine efficacy because um, you know we can see see that people are genuine. You know, people who have been vaccinated do actually actually become ill or not just get you know false positive tests. So. It's harder. It's harder to to hide that one. They were pushing all of that stuff with the with the testing and the numbers, and then that all just. I'm sure that went away around about when they got their numbers for vaccination. I'm I'm yeah. think it happened the same in the UK, and then it, the the whole narrative just disappeared when the Ukraine situation began. Yeah. Then they just stopped talking about COVID altogether, even though I know here our uh, local our state government was still publishing people dying of COVID or I think at next, actually now I think they always say with COVID because there was also yeah. that issue, the with COVID and from COVID. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the UK, it was always, you know, they claimed to, uh, that, that, that they've got some figures which are just uh, from COVID. But, you know, we know that, for example, in the first two years 
you know, we, we saw this from a freedom of information request that I think it was so like of the 130,000 COVID classified deaths, those people with, with COVID in, in, um, in England, that was from, uh, you know, so from February, 2020 to the end of December, 2021, that's the, you know, the two main years of sort of COVID deaths. There was a, yeah, out of that 130,000, there were less than 5% who didn't have at least one serious comorbidity. And of course, for the, because we, we always have saw this age categorized and uh, under the age of 20, you know what the number was? How many of the of those who were officially classified as dying under the age of 20 didn't have at least one serious comorbidity? Zero? In the whole it was three. Mm. Three. I've heard you explain that as well. That that would be good for the listeners to hear as well, because the UK, what's their name? The uh, the National Board of Statistics or Office for National Statistics. They they weren't stratifying the age classes when they were calling the deaths. Is that correct? Uh, well, there's a lot of <laughs> with, there's a lot of is- different issues with the Office for National Statistics uh, data. It, originally, when they were they first started to put out the the mortality data by vaccination status, and originally, yeah, they they weren't we didn't have any um, proper age classifications. It was just I think they just lumped it. I think the only age classification we got originally was something like uh, I don't know over. There might have just been un, un, under six, under, was it under 65? And then I can't remember exactly, but they were just like, it wasn't, you know, you had this massive group up to the age of at least at least 60. And then, you know, I think they had like sort of over 85s and you had a group in between. So it was very, very difficult to un, understand what the true risks were for, for particular age groups, for especially in the, the younger age groups. You just, it, that was all being blurred by this, you know, this lack of uh, categorization of the age data so we we took them up you know we asked they were quite good in the sense that subsequent reports that they were publishing did have a bit more refined age categorization but of course we discovered as soon as they started to do that we discovered there were obvious flaws in their data right and the most obvious one was that we discovered that you had this with these these weird peaks of of, of non-covid mortality apparently occurring in the unvaccinated in each age group, just at the time when the vaccine rollout peaked for that age group. And you think, well, hang on a sec, this can't be right. Why would people not taking the vaccine cause them to suddenly die in increased numbers from non-COVID illness? And especially it was, and it was happening, you know, as I say, just after the, the 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 vaccine rollout peaked, and it was they were different different age groups had these different peaks because they were different rollout times. Okay, so you could see this, and of course, we realised straight away that this was due to this was a misclassification problem. This was that people who were dying very shortly after vaccination were being classified as unvaccinated, and of course, for all the efficacy, they were saying, "Oh no, they didn't. They weren't doing that for deaths." Yes, they do it for when they consider efficacy, because you know that if if you're trying to work out the efficacy of the vaccine, if you get if you get COVID, if you get a positive test within 14 days 
of the first dose, you're you're, you're classified as unvaccinated, which was the the classic way to massively boost, artificially boost the efficacy numbers for for vaccines. But this was happening with mortality. And at the same time, at the same time, you're getting those who are those who are vaccinated, right, are suddenly having a lower non-COVID mortality rate as well. So, it, you know, COVID, so the vaccine is not only apparently stopping you from getting COVID or dying from COVID, but it's apparently stopping you from dying from all, most other illnesses as well. So it's all about, you know, it's all about misclassification. And then they, they said, no, it's this is all, they, they came back to said, this is all to do with the, it's a so-called healthy, healthy vaccine effect that you know it's 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 the healthier people who get vaccinated and the unhealthy ones don't well that doesn't explain the peaks after the peak deaths in the unvaccinated shortly after the rollout what it might explain and i think it probably does to a certain extent is why generally if you ignore those those weird peaks generally you will be seeing the lower non-covid mortality rate in the vaccinated but the problem there is that if that healthy um, vaccine effect exists, which it possibly does, then you need to adjust any all of the statistical claims you make about the efficacy of the vaccine in terms of its stopping, reducing all-cause mortality has to be adjusted to take account of that. And they never did. Mm. So it's all bias. It's all biases in favour of the vaccine, which never get adjusted for. And so, you know, the ONS, you know, th- th- there are other... I mean, the ONS, the other problem with the ONS... Uh, data that we we expose was they massively underestimate the um proportion of unvaccinated right they were claiming the last time they put out their report which was up until was may 2022 i mean it was a july 2022 report but the data was up to may 2022 at which point they were they were assuming they were estimating eight percent of the adult that population unvaccinated whereas we we are absolutely certain it was at least 20%. Now, if you underestimate the that that proportion of unvaccinated is critical to all the subsequent estimates you make about the efficacy of the vaccine and the safety of the vaccine. Because if you assume the a very low uh, number of, if you assume an artificially low number of unvaccinated, the effect of that is that you're then creating an artificially high mortality rate for the unvaccinated against the vaccinated. Mm. And so that so, yeah. that would also mean that the if the unvaccinated aren't having any issues from the vaccine, it also makes the vaccine look better. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It, 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 it artificially inflates the efficacy of the vaccine and it artificially um, inflates the uh, the safety of the vaccine in terms of it, it, it's it's claiming a lower mortality rate for the vaccinated than is really the case. Hmm. Because you're dividing in that you're dividing by a bigger number of people for the vaccinated and a smaller number of people for the unvaccinated. So the so the rates for the um, the unvaccinated look higher than for the vaccinated. Hmm. Yeah, that was something as well, I think, that I would have hoped had have woken people up at the time was was this, as you said, this this 14-day delay. So if, as you said, if you, in summary, if you 
got COVID within 14 days of being vaccinated, you were classed as an unvaccinated COVID case. And if you died in that 14 days, it wasn't the vaccine because you were unvaccinated. So that's that's how it looked. But it's it's I think it's like say you you tread on a rusty nail and you go to your doctor and they give you a tetanus shot. It it would seem strange to me that the doctor would say if you don't die in the next 14 days, you'll be okay. It's yeah. it's assumed that it takes effect fairly quickly. And uh, 14 days seems like quite a long time out for uh, the vaccine to take effect. Yeah, it, 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 but it's, in a sense, it's worse than that because we know from the various observational studies, of which you know there's, there's quite a lot of data out there, that... When you actually look into the data, when you actually look at the data in those studies, you will find a dis- disproportionately higher number of people getting uh, COVID infection or PCR becoming getting PCR positive tests within within the fourteen days of the, uh, the, the their first vaccination. And of course, it also happens for the second dose, the third, you know, the second dose, the third dose, etc. Because also within fourteen or uh, seven or fourteen days of the second dose, they still classify you as only one dose vaccinated as well so it works the same with subsequent doses but take the example of the first dose you're getting a much higher proportion a much higher proportion of in any two week if you take any two week period we looked at this any two week period for example we looked at this in the there was this big study of 22 they call it the cleveland study it involved over 100,000 health workers in 22 states in the u.s you could see that in any two in any two week period there, the vaccinated, those who 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 are two weeks within their first vaccination, had a much higher COVID case rate than those who were unvaccinated in that period. In those periods, so if you look at any two week period after vaccination and compare the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the vaccinated much more likely to become, you know, to be uh, test positive. So what do they do for the numbers? They either count them as unclassified, in which case they're they're shifting them. You're you're being shifted to the wrong category or you don't count them at all. But either way, you're massively, you're massively, you're going to end up with a situation whereby a placebo vaccine can be shown to be very effective, basically, if you do that. I have heard it called that a glorified placebo and and it has it be, it's kind of become a religion in that the people yeah, I mean, that, look, that won't let it go that with the with the with the definitions it is a fact we've shown it i've done some sort of videos on this uh using just their definitions you will you you will create a very highly effective vaccine um which is just a placebo and of course the interesting thing is that even when you do sort of a simulation of that, you get the same effect to what's happening in reality. Because what happens is that it only works up until the time you've boosted a, you've, you've vaccinated a, a reasonable portion of the population. Then even with our, even with the placebo vaccine, it then suddenly becomes not effective anymore. So it actually simulates exactly what you see for the so-called, you know, effective COVID vaccines. You know, so you know, my view is that it's it's essentially just the statistical. It's an inevitable statistical illusion created by the flawed definitions and misclassifications, etc. Yeah, and of course, it went from ninety-five 
percent efficacy to 85 and 70 and 50 yeah. and and now it's almost nothing but there are still <laughs> unfortunately it's negative now as well yeah it's, it's negative there are still people uh, unfortunately lining up for more i guess I, I don't think it's very many i believe in the us that like for children it was it's below 10% i think or 5% yeah. even so that's there are some positives coming out of it oh there was also too at the at the other end with the you know i know in australia i think it was the same in the uk if you died within 28 days of a positive pcr test in a car accident or of a heart attack yeah. i remember seeing a nurse very early on probably 2 years ago now say that a uh, a patient had come in after suffering a heart attack was tested at the door because they were testing everyone tested yeah. positive was put in the covid ward and you know that if you were sharing things like that 2 years ago you're crazy but that should ring alarm bells because it's pretty obvious why the person's there they're there for the heart attack yeah. or the car accident they're not there because they've got they have a subsequent flu at the same time I know. I mean, this is this is this is what was happening. I mean, you know, that's as I mentioned before, that was the definition in the UK. I mean, that's why you get how I many of that hundred thirty thousand, as I said, in the first uh, two years were, were cases like that. I'm not saying that there are, there's going to be a large number of those who just happened to, you know, who died in a car accident, you know, shortly after happened to have a sort of a positive PCR test. But the point is, lots of people, everybody, as you said, everybody going into hospital for whatever reason, whether it was a you know, for cardiology, cancer, whatever, had to get the, uh, the, the 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 COVID test. And irrespective of whether they died of the cancer or the, you know, the cardiac problem, they were classified as a COVID death. And, and interesting enough, a lot we know as well that many people, many people contracted COVID after going into hospital as well, because, you know, that's where there was, a, there was genuinely was a lot of COVID around then. So... So again, that was that was inflating numbers. I and mean, the other thing, I mean, there's this other thing. I don't know if you've, you've been following the recent controversy here, although it was sort of known about quite a long time ago. Again, it's only become a kind of a bit of a public thing here with the original um, spring death surge in the UK, mainly in the elderly, right? Which all, of course, attributed to COVID, right? But were almost certainly massively inflated by the particular um the health guidelines which were published by nice at the time which was effectively to give things like midazolam to people and you know do not resuscitate all that sort of stuff so effectively people um who could have been who could have certainly could have been treated were effectively put on uh end of life protocols you know they call it a death protocol and um what's interesting about it, that's come out because the it turns out nice that was a, a that was a um that was published on their website or whatever in April, April 2020 right and it got deleted it got de completely deleted you know they didn't want it, anybody knowing that, that those were the guide those had been the guidelines at the time and it, you know you, you could only find this with difficulty on the sort of the wayback machine so you know the the very very fact that they didn't want anybody any longer knowing what those protocols were because they were so obviously flawed and so obviously led to an, an unnecessary spike in deaths in the elderly i mean is 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 pretty disturbing mm -hmm. i did hear about the midazolam 
situation over there. I know here they were because interesting as I, I looked at the uh, the New South Wales Health, the state that I'm in, and what their recommendations at the time of the second lockdown, their recommendations for treatment of COVID, they had this little uh, image that they put out on social media and it was a, a thermometer, a, a test, a uh, rapid antigen test, I think it was, uh, Gatorade, and I think it was jam on toast. So there was <laughs> no no talk about sunlight, vegetables or rest it was it was just ridiculous things and they if you googled the protocol in our state and our whole country they were using remdesivir to treat people and it was interesting that previously things like ivermectin were banned and that's why the the whole horse pace thing happened was because uh doctors weren't prescribing things like ivermectin that yeah. some doctors around the world were, were having success with, which was a safe drug. But then remdesivir, I believe, is a failed Ebola drug that killed yeah. 25% of the patients it was trialled on. And, again, nobody knows about that. And if I, I talked to anyone can't... who knew someone who was sick with COVID in hospital, they didn't know that they were using remdesivir. And I just say Google side effects of remdesivir. Because early yeah. on, people were also dying of uh, renal failure, and that's yeah, one of the I side mean, effects. Of course, those that was amongst that. You know, talking about the uh, negative effects of remdesivir and talking about the positive effects of other safe early treatment drugs was one of the things that were most severely mm-hmm. um, uh, censored on, on the internet. I mean, these were the things, for example, the seventy seven brigade were instructed to go after. You know, right from the start. So. It was impossible to get any of that information out uh, in the UK, and I'm sure it was the same elsewhere. Hmm. Oh, you couldn't even ask a question about ivermectin. You were just, you're a conspiracy theorist, whatever, if you're just saying, but it's on the WHO's list of essential medicines, surely it's worth a try, and you would just be shot down. It It was crazy. I mean, I'm just looking at the, I'm just, I've just brought up that nice guidelines I mentioned, and it really is it really is terrible. They're effectively saying consider giving this this terrible stuff, which is it wasn't just midazolam; it was haloperidol, levamprazine, whatever. It says consider giving it to patients who well, it says who are they believe to be at the end of life and have moderate to severe breathlessness and are distressed. Wow. That's actually in the guidelines. So if you if the you know, if the doctor thinks, oh, you know, we, we, this is, you know, there's the you know, we don't think this patient's going to live that much longer, and oh, they seem to be have difficulty breathing, they're a bit distressed. Right, that's it. You you know, <laughs> this is what you got to do to them. <laughs> don't give them. Don't attempt to tr- sort of treat them with antibiotics or anything like that. Just uh, basically pump them up with uh, midazolam. Yeah, and you had these these doctors from around the world not not prescribing anything really crazy or difficult to get. They were prescribing things like zinc and vitamin yeah, D yeah. and vitamin C and, you know, with maybe with hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And they were all being deleted from from social media and deregistered. And yeah. I just, 
I, I'm still in disbelief, and that's why you know we're having this podcast still three years on because I I just cannot believe that that everyone out there shouldn't be awake to this now. And I guess what's important is that we don't go through it again, and that's why well, I want to talk is, about it. Well, I think that we the problem is that I think that we will go through it again. It might not it be, you know it it. I mean, it was. I, I think that the the way that this whole narrative was framed and controlled with all the censorship, you know, it was always about control. It was always about control and the extent to which, you know, you could. Uh, they wanted to understand the extent to which they could push the most of the population into accepting, you know, the, con- the, the these new types of controls, be it you know lockdowns of various sorts, or be it taking you know new types of um medical interventions right now those or new interventions it doesn't even have to be medical it could be sort of digital interventions the whole point is it's all about it all fits into you know this is where we call conspiracy theorists because we simply look at what the unwf 2030 agenda is saying and you can see it fits perfectly into that all of this and it's and that's where that's where it's heading i think they've now seen that they you know that how easy it is to do these psyops in people to, you know, to convince them to behave in a particular way that um, it's all about now moving towards what well, I always feared that the, that the COVID lockdowns were kind of a precursor for climate lockdowns. Of course, climate lockdowns net zero is a bit different. It's not locking, it's not forcibly locking people in their homes and stopping them, you know, going to visit their sort of uh, dying relatives. It's not exactly like that, but it's all about, uh, you know, making them aware they shouldn't travel. They shouldn't have any kind of, kind of like unnecessary uh, travel. They shouldn't sort of take, you know, holidays abroad. It's, it's 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 all about ultimately reducing their movement. And now they've got the sort of the move towards fifteen minute cities and all of that. So it's 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 a it's a lockdown of in a, of a different type. But that's where where it's moving. And and maybe I think there still will be a push towards more uh, pharmaceutical. Um, vaccine interventions because they'll come up with new viruses and you know there might be sort of new you know different types of pandemics but I think it's all you know it's it's it was always about I mean the UK they almost we got to the point where it was almost going to happen and luckily it didn't for the time being it was all about pushing people to have you know the vaccine and having your uh, vaccine status digitally confirmed it was all about the you know the digital vaccine passport which was going to be part of the digital id and of course the whole point about the international digital id is that this is the way that you will this is the only way in the future you'll be able to move from country to country and eventually inside your own country i think is you'll have on that not just you know proof of you know the normal kind of things you expect for proof of id but it's going to have you know your sort of social credit score and of course all your vaccine status and, and anything they want to put on there which they want which in future they'll want to control and of course ultimately you know ultimately I the, the, the my worst fear is that ultimately you will need to have a digital ID simply to log on to the internet and this will be the ultimate way to control any dissent because it's only through the sort of the alternative media on the internet that, that, that you know we've been able to have any of these sort of discussions or or make it public in any way the sort of the research that we've done during the last few years one thing that i noticed and i guess it's 
probably psychology 101 but what they what they quite often did was take away a lot of freedom and then give a little bit back yeah but not all of it and then take away some more freedom and then give a little bit back and they did that over and over again so there was this yeah. sort of wave of and and people were so relieved to have the smallest bit of freedom and yeah. And I think what it does is it prepares people. They know then how much they can get away with. And and you mentioned the uh, the climate lockdowns, and I know they had one in in Oxford. It's, I guess, it's people will think well compared to to COVID, exactly. it's it's better, so they'll yeah, accept exactly. it. This is this is where it's heading. It's all about. That it's 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 an it's a massive psyops to get people used to the agenda twenty thirty mm. net zero narrative. And I, I think I just had I had Ian Davis on my podcast the the last episode, and and we talked about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And you know, I I've been in the environment sector for the last twenty years. Up until about two years ago, I had the sustainable development goals on my website or some of them and they're not there now because you know i've i started wondering well how come they haven't done anything about any of these things you know you stopping world hunger for example mm, yeah and it's and after if anyone should listen to ian ian's episode because really what it is is setting up more markets for the same people that caused all the problems in the first place i don't i i don't think anyone would disagree that we you know we're flattening forests and filling the ocean with plastic and you know polluting places and and people die of pollution but when it when you look de- deep down what they're doing is finding ways to make more money and have more control and that's exactly what covid was because if they did everything the opposite to health, and I, I yeah. don't think that's an accident, because yeah. if that we know now, it's it's interesting now. You see science coming out that you know some of us didn't need two years ago. We know that sunlight and exercise and and nutrition are a good way for your body to defend itself against most things. Yeah. And and what did they do? Locked people inside made them wear masks, made them not meet other people. Like we know when a when a baby is born, they if they're breastfed, they have if they have a natural birth, they have these these extra abilities because they've picked up some of the mother's immunity. Yeah. And that's how children then playing in the playground, they're all over each other. That's how they their their bodies learn immunity. So what did we do? We lock everyone up and then Two years later, they can say, oh, everyone's getting sick because they missed out on that natural immunity. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's other things too. Or, or they blame it on long COVID, which is also a convenient uh, part of the narrative. To Yeah. And this might be anecdotal, but I don't know any unvaccinated people in my circles who have long COVID. Do you know we've been asking, this is the thing, I ask, you know, I continually ask uh, the so-called long COVID experts show me show me the data. Are you collecting the data on the vaccination status of, of, of long COVID? Nobody has produced it. That, um, that's 
a yeah. bit of a key information there, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you you get, oh, oh, my God, there are so many law studies like that where they, they, they I mean, I, there was one I picked up on um, recently, which was talking about, again, the benefits of, it was something actually was that was, that was sponsored by um, uh, AstraZeneca, and again, it failed to it, it, it failed to note the vaccination status of the people in the study, whereas it was it was claiming some benefits of the vaccination without actually um, they didn't actually bother to check the vaccination status of the people in the study. It's, it's beyond belief some of this stuff. Uh, someone sent me a uh, a study, and that's in inverted commas. If you're vaccinated against COVID, it reduces heart attack. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a recent one. There's a, yeah, just I just saw it today. So yeah, that's I know I've seen that one. It looks that's ridiculous. Neil Ferguson, he is the the guy behind the data. They did models of how many people yeah. would die during COVID. Yeah, he's also the person who did the models for climate changes. I think that's correct as well. I'm not sure what he's done on climate change. He certainly was responsible for the the previous flower completely failed models on the previous uh pandemics and swine flu and that which we got completely wrong as well he's been basically wrong on just about everything he's ever made public or has been used by the government but <laughs> but you're right in the sense of the climate i mean the the climate models are similar i mean well in the sense that they're these complex mathematical models which make ridiculous assumptions on certain parameters which can drive let's say again are easily manipulated to create the impression of a crisis which doesn't exist. Let's just put it like that. I mean, there's a, you know, and and it isn't a coincidence that, you know, the people who, let's say, are either pushing, either involved in that modelling or, or, or pushing the results of that modelling, you know, the, the, it's the same set of people for the climate modelling and, and, and the exaggerated effects of COVID. That's against the, the mathematical models might be a bit different, but the people pushing them are the same. <laughs> mm, that's really interesting. And I, I just have to ask you, you were on a, a BBC uh, climate, um, I guess you'd call it a documentary, and I, yeah. heard, I heard you say that you went in with an open mind. You said you came out of it with uh, a different feeling. Are you able to explain what happened or some of what happened no. there? I really wish I could say it. This is something that I really wish, and might maybe in, in the near future, I might be able to say more. I'm probably still. I had to sign. I, I need to get this checked. I had to sign this, this um, NDA about what I could say in public about this. But I'll, I'll repeat what I I said on my a blog at the time after the program, which incidentally that itself had to be edited. That was only allowed after BBC the BBC edited it. Right, so there's a certain amount, certain things I can say and can't say. But uh, let's just put it like this: that it was heavily script. You know, everything I said was effectively scripted by by so-called consultants, experts, because we were supposed to be. It was supposed to be three mathematicians presenting that sort of this climate it's called climate change by numbers. Uh, but it was all scripted by so-called expert climate scientists or whatever climate modelers, and I was quite unhappy with some I, I i did want to put some stuff of my own in you know to sort of at least um 
present, let's say, a slightly more balanced view because this this it was the it was it turned out it was, it was the ultimate. It was a classic propaganda piece for the sort of the climate emergency. It was, it was inflating the you know the the scale of the problem. Let's just put it like that. And I, I felt very uncomfortable with it because I wasn't happy with you know I felt uncomfortable. I felt some of the things I was being scripted to say weren't quite right, and some of the things I wanted to add in to put balance and which were filmed, never made it into the final, never made it into the final edit. And so afterwards, yeah, I, I, I did raise these concerns, you know, the extent to which it was sort of manipulating the data. You know, I, I did subsequently find out also that, that the motives of the, um, some of those consultants weren't exactly uh, purely scientific. They, they, they had a, you know, they, they had an agenda. So I came away deeply skeptical. You know, I mean, I maybe didn't say at the time. I sort of made that sort of made out that I wasn't totally happy. I made it clear I wasn't totally happy with it, but I didn't want to go too far. I am now a deeply, I am deeply skeptical. Having seen it from the inside, having seen what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, having seen the unbelievable biases and the political biases, a non-scientific biases of the scientists. The political biases of the scientists who are pushing this, I am, I am, I am a very, very deep skeptic on, on that whole climate change narrative. Almost ashamed of having been a presenter of such a documentary. <laughs> I, I just had to ask you that question because, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to discourage people from, from caring about the planet. Uh, quite opposite, I, I know that the planet has issues, but I'm. After the last few years, I just want people to to have an open mind. If that's happening, that is really concerning. And and as as I said before, if the same people are involved with the models, and then if the same the same groups of people, the upper echelons of our society, the yeah. parasite class, as Ian Davis calls them, are going to benefit by more power and more money, and it's all going to be we're the ones who will be restricted in what we do, then we really need to make sure that we know what's happening and not just go along with what they say because they've been proven to be, well, liars. And the carbon trading market has $140 trillion set aside. And as Ian Davis says, it doesn't matter if you believe or not, it won't do anything and it won't actually reduce carbon and it certainly won't reduce waste protect oceans, forests, wetlands, reefs, rivers, anything like that. It's about them making more money and having more power. Corporations controlling everything, including nature. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the, the, they're the one, they're, the, they're not going to be the ones eating insects. They'll be eating steaks and they'll, you know, they'll be the ones eating the insects, that's for sure. Mm, absolutely. What can I say, Norman Fenton, thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I know you're busy. Thanks a lot. It's okay. uh, it's great yeah, to hear someone speak. who knows the numbers better than I do. Okay, great to speak with you. All right. Thanks, Norman.
Thank you for listening to episode 82 with Professor Norman Fenton. And I hope you learned something about Bayesian probabilistic reasoning and some of the things you might have been questioning during the COVID narrative, but uh, you needed the expertise of someone like Professor Norman Fenton to uh, explain it to you. But you always knew there was something a little bit fishy. And of course, he's suffered for it by them uh, trying to rewrite his, his history and uh, make him look like he's a little bit crazy but uh, of course he's not so I encourage you to look up Norman's website it is normanfenton.com and you can read you can also follow him on Twitter and get some of his opinions from there so thanks again and I'll see you next time bye don't forget to download the Fair Food Forager app it's also here to help you find ethical and sustainable food and food that is organic, local, supporting small businesses, reduced plastic packaging, anything really to help support you and the planet. And you can share good news stories, learn from each other, and just feel good for a change about the future and what we can do to help each other and the planet. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review it, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. Thanks again to Ash Grunwald. This song is River from the album Now. Until next time, bye. We live together and everybody live downstream. We live together and everybody live downstream. Boom, boom, boom.